This is the Biblical Languages Podcast, brought to you by Biblingo, the world's best software for learning and retaining the biblical languages. I'm Josh Mann, talking once again with my co-host, Kevin Grasso. So episode three, I'm here with Kevin Grasso. I'm Josh Mann, and we're talking today about uh, studying the cultural context of the Bible. Sometimes uh, people use the, the term cultural backgrounds or similar phrases. So we're going to talk about what it is, why it's important. We're going to offer some examples, uh, talk through some pitfalls, you know, when, when applying this kind of contextual information to understanding passages in the Old and New Testament. And so um, I'm really excited. This is, you know, Kevin and I are both passionate about, uh, you know, using all of these areas of knowledge to uh, understand the Bible better. So we thought we might open with just a quick example. What do we mean? What's an example or illustration of this? And One that came to mind was in Revelation chapter 3, it's the seventh letter in in chapters 2 and 3, which is addressed, which is is written from the perspective of Jesus to a church. And this is the church at Laodicea. And in verse 15, um, just reading an English translation, uh, Jesus says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And there's some evidence um, that's been put forward, I think, first by Colin Hamer in a book. Stan Porter also wrote an article which further supported this, um, both, I think, in, in the mid to late 80s. In any case, that Laodicea, the city, piped in water from nearby Heropolis and Colossae, uh, from hot springs and cold springs, but by the time it reached Laodicea, the water was lukewarm, and that, in fact, lukewarm water was undesirable, and therefore, the meaning in that case would be that, um, of, of cold and hot would be that cold or hot would both be desirable qualities, but lukewarm is an undesirable quality. Now, this really contrasts what I thought it meant when I was growing up and read this passage as a young Christian. I thought, oh, this means that God would rather me be either cold or hot, hot being good and sort of committed and devoted to him, cold being the opposite. Um, But that, in fact, uh, given this cultural context, this bit of uh, historical information about Laodicea, that, in fact... um, Cold and hot are both good things, uh, if, if this is in fact true. So this is one tiny example of, of thousands that we could give where some kind of historical information, cultural context, uh, can help illuminate a passage in Scripture. So that's what we're talking about. Um, so what do we mean by cultural context? Uh, and what are some other names for it? Yeah, so I I think an important thing to keep in mind when we're discussing something like the cultural context is that really what 
what it is is necessary information um, that that we assume in normal acts of communication, right? That informs how we how we use language. So, so there are all kinds of ways that we just assume certain things um, in communication, um, just because we have shared shared context, um, just a shared culture. So I think the the issue with you know studying the Bible outside of its cultural context is those kinds of things that they would take um, you know just for granted, just assume we aren't assuming because we have a different culture, we have a different context that we are living in, and so when when the scriptures communicate. Um, they were communicating to their culture because they wanted to be, you know, informative to their culture, right? To the to the the culture in which they were writing to, and and of course that doesn't mean that the the Bible is irrelevant for for our culture and context. But what it does mean is that if we are going to get to the the meaning of the text, the intended meaning of the author, then then we have to get back to that original cultural context and think about the things that they were taking for granted and think about the ways in which, you know, some words and terms um, they would use were, were loaded with meaning um, because, of, because of the culture that they lived in. Yeah, so um, cultural context is, is the, the phrase that I'm using. Some, some might call it cultural backgrounds. Um, and, and so we're, we're really talking about a broad number of things. So maybe let's just outline some of the main contexts and these aren't mutually exclusive and, and we'll talk about some maybe pitfalls that we can get into when we start to compartmentalize all of these different areas, but, um, I'll just call them contexts, uh, the, uh, and areas of, uh, cultural context that we might study. So why don't you kick us off, Kevin? Yeah, so I think the, I mean, starting out with the Old Testament, um, you know, the biggest sort of background to the Old Testament is what's called, you know, ancient Near Eastern literature and culture. And, you know, the kind of the big players um, in, in this realm is, you know, the Babylonian or Assyrian cultures, along with the Sumerian culture, um, just hugely influential in that whole region, one of the oldest cultures in the world. Um, and then obviously Egypt. Um, Egypt had tremendous influence both on the, the Israelite people, right, who were there for, for 400 years, and, and also just on that whole region of Israel. They were in and out of that region um, for a very long time, vying for land. And then and then we have the smaller like Canaanite cultures that um, Israel encountered when they came into the land. So I think those are the three kind of like big categories that we can we can think of that that had just profound influence on on the writing and the shaping of of the Old Testament. Yeah. And and for the New Testament and, you know, we're 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 using large categories here and 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 we're not um, 
these aren't absolute categories, nor are they necessarily exhaustive, but in terms of the New Testament literature, um, there, there, are, there are rabbinic uh, texts and cultural contexts, which are sometimes used to illuminate passages and understandings of, um, of Jewish uh, religious practice. Um, and some of those texts uh, can be dated later, and so anyway, there's, there's some care that has to be taken in, in the application of any of these things, which we might talk about in a moment. Um, there's Second Temple Jewish literature as well, and, and the huge uh, context of, of Greco-Roman uh, culture and literature as well. And I mean, these are huge categories and also not mutually exclusive. Um, these, these are, are cultures that mixed and mingled and, and were interspersed. And, um, and I might also add just the authors of the New Testament were in, in virtually all Jewish men. There's some debate about a few of those authors. Uh, who, many of whom had grown up steeped in, in their Jewish culture and not, uh, you know, and became Christians at some point, which is almost um, an anachronism. So they, they began following Jesus, we might even say. And so, you know, their religious background and, and their literary background of their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, uh, or what are sometimes called the Hebrew scriptures, are, are hugely important as well um, and play significantly into our understanding of, of the New Testament. But we might also talk about um, some, some topics when we're thinking about cultural contexts. What would be some topics that we might uh, consider? Yeah, so I, I think one of the biggest things and one of the most interesting is just the daily life of of the people um and so this is the kind of thing that you know if you're looking into into cultural context like you you would want to look into the daily life how people just lived um in each of these sorts of contexts so you know if you're looking at the old testament you you would look into you know how the babylonians lived on a day-to-day basis, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, etc., right? And and to see if that would shed light on, you know, the on various statements in in the scriptures, um, and it often does because the the context of you know the Bible is a very sort of daily life context, right? Um, David's a shepherd; he's just a normal guy feeding sheep. Um, and so that, that context is hugely important. And then you have things that are more specific to, you know, the gods and, and really this was very much a part of, of daily life, but the cultic context, um, you know, how they worshiped, um, what, what their temples were like, all of those things are, are hugely important both in their daily life, but also just as a, a special, um, category in the culture, you know, what were the priests like? What, what did they do? What were the, what were their practices? It's it's very fruitful to look at the the different rituals found in in Babylonian cultures, for example, and Canaanite cultures, and to compare those to Leviticus. Um, it's very interesting, and it can help us understand better, you know, the kinds of things that um, might have been going through 
the heads of the worshipers in in the Old Testament. And then there's, you know, archaeology and architecture, um, economic and all, all kinds of things that we could we could talk about as far as topical. But but really, each of these, you know, would want to be explored in each of the cultures to really get a firm understanding of, of the background. This reminds me of um, one of my first experiences of, of kind of an ancient uh, physical place was visiting Rome and, and the, for the express purpose of kind of a New Testament, Greco-Roman context sort of tour, you might say. And we visited lots of ancient sites. Um, and just when you're walking the streets and you, you sit down in an amphitheater or you, um, I mean, you just get this sense of this is how wide the street was. This is what it would be like to walk across the street. Or, oh, you know, somebody's, you know, maybe a, a baker lives above their shop in a kind of second floor apartment. Um. I can never remember what second floor is anymore because in Britain, you count the ground floor differently than in the U.S. So anyway, the story above the ground floor shop. Anyway, but you know, all of these little things do subtly affect the way you imagine and envision certain stories in, in Scripture. And so um, these even mundane parts of daily life do uh, help us understand what it is we're reading and and you know just a, a trip to to any archaeological site really illuminates that really makes that clear i think so how do we study it so we're suggesting this is important we've suggested some areas uh, or uh, topics uh, for you know to, to pay attention to to look into these things but how do we study it what would be some resources yeah, so so for me personally, um, kind of the the route that I take is is to get a commentary that that focuses on the cultural background. So there's several of these. IVP has one. Um, there's a you know a cultural background study Bible, um, but something that you know where where the point is like to draw parallels between the ancient world uh, outside of the Bible and the Bible itself. And then, you know, really just find the original sources that they're citing and, and read them. Um, I mean, I think this is something that we have an extraordinary privilege today to be able to read things that, you know, w we didn't have access to. Just put simply, you know, weren't translated, um, weren't even found, you know, even a hundred years ago. There are so many new things today that we have access to in the English language. Um, and it's just, it's, it's actually really an awesome opportunity to dig into these, these original sources and to, to discover for yourself, you know, what, what they said. I mean, of course, in the beginning, when you look at these sources, it's, it's, um, it can be a little daunting because, because it really is a different world. And that's, a, but that's precisely the point, right? That, you know, th there's so many things when you, when you start reading these texts that are, are, are very odd and very confusing because it, it's a different world. And that should tell us something about, you know, the Bible as well, right? There are, there are things in there that we think we understand well, um, but we might be misunderstanding because, because we don't share that same, that same culture. 
Yeah, those are great recommendations. So I think, you know, it, anyone, even if you're out there and and you're not, you know, you're you don't have aspirations necessarily to be uh, a New Testament or Old Testament scholar. Um, these these kinds of background commentaries offer offer you a window into specific ancient cultural bits of information that are relevant to specific passages in scripture. And and as Kevin says, you know, the the amount of literature, I mean there it's almost inexhaustible the amount of ancient literature that we have available translated into English and even other languages if your native language is not English. Um there are some source books out there and I I honestly I I didn't prepare uh many recommendations here but one that comes to mind which was used at some point in my own education was a source book in Roman social history which is called As the Romans Did uh it's edited by Joanne Shelton I think it was published in 97 but you know it it's it gives you some some actual sources but it also you know she's edited that so that it it addresses all of these areas of, of life and it's it's a really cool way to kind of get a snapshot, an overview of 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 Roman life, and you know that's only one important context for understanding the ancient world, especially around the time of the New Testament. Um, but these kinds of source books offer uh, a kind of uh, collated series of of literary excerpts that can can kind of lower the bar for for entry into these things yeah for for sure and and one of the the classic texts or one of these anthologies um for the old testament is you know ancient near eastern texts relating to the old testament by pritchard um so that one is is a great place to start it's from i, I think the the late 70s um a newer one, Brill has one called The Context of Scripture, which is three volumes, um, definitely pricier, but, but a, a bit more exhaustive. Um, and that, that also is, is, is very helpful in, in drawing a lot of these connections for you. Yeah, that's good. And I, I, now things are coming to mind. Um, Craig Evans has, I think he's got a couple of these out, but one is Ancient Text for the New Testament Studies, A Guide to the Background Literature. And did he, was there an Old Testament version of that? It seems like there's a second version of that, something similar. But anyway, that, that's enough to kind of get uh, get you going in, in these areas. So, so things like that are helpful. I think, you know, it's a little bit harder to know until you kind of get into um, newer Old Testament scholarship. But you begin to discover that certain authors, sometimes a whole commentary series, like just a biblical commentary series, are focus more on these kinds of issues, but certainly there are certain authors who, regardless of, of who publishes their commentary, you know, you can kind of depend on for, um, to be pretty heavy on the cultural background. So, um, you know, that would be something, you know, you can shoot us an email, we can give you recommendations for specific books of the Bible, um, and, and certainly there would be some others who could do the same for you. Another area we might consider how what we're calling kind of cultural context have a lot to do with or can't be separated from linguistic contexts and language um so what what kinds of things are we talking about there yeah so one 
of the examples that comes to my mind is um, based on a conversation I had with a friend who lived in the Netherlands. He grew up there and um, we met at Hebrew University and, you know, doing Hebrew together. Um, and we had this, we got into this discussion one evening about, about bros. <laughs> and um, it was a great example of how you can understand the words at some level, but miss a lot of the meaning. So, you know, him growing up in the Netherlands, he, he didn't have this sort of idea of what it means to be a bro that that someone in the states you know someone who goes to college and um you know has this specific idea of of you know bro culture and we actually looked it up that night on on wikipedia and there's a whole wikipedia article on bro culture and Mm -hmm. and so he i was having this conversation actually with with our wives because we were or with yeah yeah so we were all from the states um, and he was the, the only one left out and his English is superb, but he didn't understand, you know, that cultural, um, context of, of that word. So I, you know, I called him a bro or something for, for something he did. And he, he thought, you know, it was, it was a, a compliment or, you know, I was calling him, it was just short for brother when, when really it isn't. And, and, um, it just goes to show you how you know, language is influenced by and influences culture. And and you really do have to, when you're learning a language, you do have to learn the cultural background of of a word sometimes. Um, and, yeah. and even if you think about, you know, you know, you might think, oh, well, bro has this this special meaning because you know it's short it's a shortened form of brother right um but but the word cis actually doesn't have that same sort of that same sort of meaning um so it's something that you you do have to learn on its own um for each individual word to see oh okay like does this word have its own um you know kind of loaded meaning in that culture and and there are some words I'm sure you know in the New Testament that we just don't know. We don't know that loaded meaning, um, and it's just you know uh, part of the reason why, um, or just part of the ways in which we misunderstand or or don't understand fully the you know what the the authors are saying. Yeah, that's a great example. And so you know on the on the podcast we're talking about a lot of issues around um you know de- determining what these texts mean and i I've, I've often felt like in biblical studies you know you 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 if if you're in academic biblical studies you'll have different teachers who emphasize different things like somebody's big on this kind of background or context somebody's big on grammar somebody is big on this other thing and you just I always felt like, well, I guess I just need to know everything about it, it all. Yeah. But there is a sense in which, you know, as mo- our, our modern native language, we do, we are, we're experts in a lot of our, our culture. I mean, that's kind of how culture works. And we didn't study to become that. 
Uh, but the more we know in, in the for these ancient texts, the better we can determine and, and understand what, what you know what what they're saying. For um, sure, and and that's why you know what you really need to do is just is just get into these sources. You know, you just you need to read. I mean, preferably in the original language. You know, just read as many of these ancient texts as you can to get to get more of a feel. For that world you know and that's something that it's not it's not about just a particular word it's it's you know seeing more like how how they would think how they would tell stories all all these sorts of things that that we know intuitively about our culture you know we can also build intuitions about about their culture right um about how it functioned how it worked and 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 what they did um you know what was important to them so all of those things you can grow in but it but it just does take getting into the sources for sure yeah yeah it just reminds me of even english translations now i i haven't prepared this example but you'll often see um in an english translation the word recline like reclining at a table and it we might be tempted in some some translational uh methods to actually make that sit at the table or something like that which is more of what we would use but when you uh when you know how they sat i mean they were reclining at a table a low table uh, reclined on their elbow and you know so even that little bit of information changes the way we imagine how jesus was anointed by by the woman for example um and it reminds me too of you know our Bablinko software, when we're teaching vocabulary, we include images and um, sometimes moving images like GIFs to illustrate not just what a word means. Um, you know, we, we don't put somebody sitting in a chair at a table. We have somebody dressed up in culturally appropriate clothing reclined at a table um, because if we can, when we learn this vocabulary and vision, something that's culturally appropriate to the time that gets us um, further ahead when we when we read these passages and understanding what these words actually mean. So let's talk briefly about some pitfalls because um, well I was just I just thought of one recently I was asked about the eye of the needle passage in, in the New Testament and was this a gate in such and such and you know, there, there are some of these uh, old nuggets out there that we hear in sermons that sometimes are misleading or there's not good evidence for. And there's other ways in which we can read a parallel, something that seems parallel and yet be mistaken. So um, sometimes the study of cultural context can lead us to make false connections. Um, one sort of famous... Uh, word for this is parallelomania, which uh, Samuel Sandmel had used in an address in 1961, an SBL presidential address in my home state of Missouri, by the way. This was in St. Louis. Um, and he was primarily talking, I think, ab about literary parallels. But I think, um, let me just quote a, a sentence from it. He says, we might, for our purposes, define parallel uh, parallelomania as that extravagance among scholars which first overdoes the supposed similarity in passages 
and then proceeds to describe source and derivation as if implying literary connection flowing in an inevitable or predetermined direction. In other words, um, you look at, at two things that seem similar, and then before we know it, we're making claims that one is dependent on the other, or um, if we would apply this to cultural backgrounds, that because two things uh, could be connected, therefore they are connected, and, 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 and yet we don't have good evidence for actually determining that connection. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's just a huge, huge issue in in a lot of scholarship and something that we have to be careful of. Um, just like when you when you think about you know what what sort of um, criteria we use right for establishing dependence, a lot of it is, or a lot of the the arguments used are. I mean, simply put, they're just, it's just not necessary. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily the case that because there, there's a similarity between two things that they, they are pulling from each other, right? Or one is dependent on the other. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the things that, um, you know, a lot of the similarities people see are, are just because human beings are similar, right? Across time, across languages across cultures we actually have a lot of similarities and and so that's the kind of thing that you know you you have to be careful of there are there are you know human experiences that are are just human and that you're going to find in every culture and then and then there are other things you know where that are more culture specific but that still might not be you know um you might not be able to establish dependence for. So, you know, the ancient Near East, for example, had a certain culture and and there were a lot of things in common across the whole ancient Near East, right? That um, you know, where where the the culture, you know, believed certain things, they they thought in certain ways. And so when you when you see a you know, one text say something, um, and then another text say something similar, right? In the Old Testament, let's say, compare it to like Hammurabi's code, for example. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, whoever the author of the Old Testament was in that particular case or who, whoever was, you know, writing that text, um, you know, had Hammurabi's code, right? It, it just might mean that 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 culture in general in the ancient Near East had a lot of similarities, whether it was Babylonian culture, whether it was, you know, Israelite culture, Canaanite culture, um, you know, they, they had something in common and they were pulling from this common, um, you know, well or, uh, yeah, of, of cultural information. And, and then they, they use that when in their writing, right? So, so it's just very, very important not to be, not to assume that we know more than we we do when it comes to these sorts of things and just be careful about you know what we can and can't say about establishing dependence we were also we were talking earlier about some other kinds of pitfalls and i think one is another one would be you know what when we're studying the biblical text we tend to privilege it and to some extent i mean 
we can talk about Christian approaches to Scripture as Scripture, and, and there's, you know, I think, you know, personally, I think that's entirely appropriate. But when we're doing historical, back, back what we sometimes call background research, or, or looking at historical contexts, sometimes we have to be careful that we, um, we understand that w- these texts occur amongst many other texts and cultures. And so we can sometimes make assumptions um, or, or be misled when we kind of treat, for example, the New Testament as entirely different than other texts of, of the, the period, and, and the same with the Old Testament. And I think, you know, sometimes this can be a little bit troubling for Christians when they first encounter the idea. Um, and, and so I, you know, we're not suggesting that it's a problem to prioritize scripture or to, um, uphold its significance, but that when we're thinking about historical and cultural contexts, um, we just have to be careful that we recognize that, um, the people, the authors, the readers lived in a culture similar to what you and I live in, um, and and are similarly influenced in that this culture includes lots of texts. Is you know is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and I think one of the you know sort of worries from from many Christians might be, oh well, like what does this do for something like inspiration? You know, like is can we trust God's word as you know God's word? Um, and I think just just to say something very quickly on that point is is just. You know, God, if if he's going to communicate, he's going to communicate in a way that human beings understand. And and that's in a certain culture and it's in a certain context. And that context and culture, you know, has lots of texts that go along with it. And so he's going to draw on, you know, cultural things in order to communicate to human beings, like because that's how we communicate. And so it's it it really has nothing to do with, you know, inspiration or not inspiration or you know, whether we're privileging scripture or not. Um, it's, it's more about, you know, how, how we can understand this text as a, an act of communication because, because it is, you know, like regardless of inspiration, it, it is still written down by man. Um, and, and, and it's that piece that, that we're trying to get to, you know, to, to see, okay, you know, how, how are these authors, you know, relating to, to the culture in which they live? And, you know, I mean, one other, one thing that I um, have found really refreshing actually about being in Israel is, is the way in which they read the New Testament. Um, They'll often read the New Testament as, as background to, to their texts. And it's actually really, really helpful to, to view the New Testament in that way because you have a different lens and it allows you to see things that you wouldn't otherwise have seen. Um, so I think that's a huge, a huge advantage actually to, to reading the text, um, you know, both as scripture, but then also asking ourselves, how does this text relate to other texts in that culture? That's really helpful. So let's just maybe end with an example from the Old Testament and uh, one from the New Testament. So 
what would be an example of cultural context illuminating an Old Testament passage or story? Yeah, so one that comes to mind for me um, is how in the Ten Plagues story, each of the Ten Plagues is actually um, representing a, a different Egyptian god or goddess. So, you know, as an example, um, the Egyptian god of the Nile, right, Hapi, is um, basically like defeated, right, when, when Yahweh, Israel's god, turns, turns the water into blood, right? And um, so that's an example of, of how, you know, the, the plague is, is, is not just something bad that's happening, to, to the Egyptians, it's, it's actually showing that Yahweh, Israel's God, you know, is stronger than, than this particular God. And then you have, you know, Hecate, the Egyptian goddess of fertility, um, and she has the head of a frog. So, you know, when frogs come from the Nile River, again, it's, it's showing that um, Yahweh, Israel's God, is, is greater than than this Egyptian god, right? And and the list goes on and on. I mean, it goes, you know, through these 10 plagues. Um, you know, each one can be related to to an Egyptian god. And that that gives you a better idea of of what Exodus is really about. You know, the Exodus, yes, it's about you know, Israel being redeemed from um from slavery in Egypt. And that's very important. But but you throughout Exodus you also have this refrain you know and and so that they might know that I am Yahweh, and that refrain, um, is is supposed to tell us something, right? God is doing all of these things; He's redeeming so that the world, right, the Egyptians, the Israelites, everyone might know that Yahweh, Israel's God is is greater than the Egyptians god Egyptian gods who are you know the greatest in the world at the time because Egypt is the greatest in the world at the time so it gives us a better insight right into that overall story of of God you know redeeming Israel and and at the same time showing the rest of the world how he is greater than than all of the gods um, of all the nations. Yeah, that's a really helpful and illuminating example. For for New Testament example, we we've touched on on one or two already, um, but I was thinking about uh, the Book of Ephesians and um, how the city of Ephesus was known for its temple to Artemis and how uh, this. This was a magnificent, enormous structure and place, and um, how Paul uses temple imagery and construction language, especially in Ephesians 2 and 3, but also in in chapter 4 where he uses body language, um, the terms are also used in construction, and um, and how it may be that he's drawing on certain local culture uh, to help to help make his points, he pictures Jews and Gentiles as as 
being constructed together into a building. And, um, and so, you know, sometimes we classify what I've just said as like a Greco-Roman background. Um, and I, I think there are some problems with just, you know, compartmentalizing Greco-Roman versus, let's say, Jewish backgrounds. But, um, but maybe uh, something that's primarily from the Greco-Roman context, but we also have um, this idea of this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles that's mentioned in chapter 2, which, uh, which, which likely draws on something uh, that they might have known from the Jerusalem temple, where there was this kind of barrier between uh, Jews and Gentiles, where Gentiles couldn't go past a certain point. You, you live in Jerusalem most of the time, Kevin, do we have some of these things in, in a museum or anything like that? Yeah, we, a- we actually do. Um, you know, in the Israel Museum, you, you can find this, um, you know, uh, s- some of these, these signs, right? And, um, you know, it says, you know, no foreigner shall enter. Um, first century Greek inscription. Yeah. Another one was discovered um, that's, that's much more complete. It says... No foreigner is allowed in the courtyard and within the wall surrounding the temple. Whoever enters will invite death for himself. That's in the Istanbul Archaeological Museum. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very, very much, you know, um, a part of the, the memory of, uh, of people living in that time, right? That, that they, would have, they would have seen this wall as as a symbol of hostility right if you if you're a gentile and you cross then you're inviting death on yourself um and so so again that's something that when we read the text it it would not be obvious to us but for anyone that's been to you know the temple in in first century jerusalem it would have been very obvious right there's a there's a sign in greek there that says you know you cannot go past this point um, and again, this is a way for us to kind of get in that world and get into their thinking, right? Even though it's not explicitly spelled out in the text, I think it would have been quite obvious for people what, what that dividing wall of, of hostility would have been referring to. Yeah. And so I think, you know, in, in the case of Ephesians, this cultural context, I mean, that specifically, uh, helps illuminate uh, the enmity, one, one way to translate one of the key words there, between Jews and Gentiles in the period. And, and we haven't really even talked about that cultural context and why, why, why there's such conflict. And, when, you know, and this features heavily in Paul's letters, um, especially Romans and Galatians as well. It's, it's also, in, it, I, I think, just helps helps us see the book of Ephesians just a little bit more vividly. Um, sometimes it, it's almost like going from standard definition to high, def- high definition. Um, it's not that you can't understand Ephesians or can't appreciate the significance that God's building Jews and Gentiles together into a, a building, into a temple, and how, you know, that in itself seems to be like a beautiful, significant thing. But when you understand that these Ephesians, uh, the, the city of the Ephesians was known for this great temple and that there is Jewish-Gentile conflict within the church and that, you know, Paul is actually saying, 
God's building you together into this building, um, you know, all of those things kind of come together and ratchet up the claim and the illustration that Paul's making uh, to what the church actually is. And, you know, uh, chapter uh, 3 culminates into this kind of doxology, which is, you know, even greater or more beautiful when, when you kind of read everything in, in, in this light. Like, wow, look at what God has done. Um, and, and so um, th- these are just two examples here in the New Testament, the Old Testament, of ways in which understanding better the cultural context of a passage helps illuminate uh, the meaning and significance of those passages. I wondered anything to add there, Kevin, on on either example or or anything else. This is just a, an interesting note on the the Artemis example. I I recently went to Turkey and um, there's you know almost nothing left of of the Temple of Artemis, um, but there there are a few um, you know columns reconstructed, and just so you can get an idea of of what it would have you know, something of an idea of what it would have been like. But um, this is another ancient source talking about it. And um, Antipater of, of Sidon's list of the world's seven wonders, he says, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And it just, it, it really is, um, you know, it, it just changes the way you read the text when you, um, when you really see these things. So I would also just encourage, um, you know, everyone to, you know, don't just read about it. I mean, if you have the opportunity to go, go. Um, if you don't have the opportunity to go, you know, get pictures, get, get videos, like see these things for yourself. Um, I mean, it's, it's a pretty thrilling thing to be able to, to see the world in which, in which, you know, the, the, the biblical writers lived. Um, and you, you really will start to appreciate the, their world more and start to understand the Bible better. Yeah, that's well said. So, um, that's episode three in the books. Uh, I think we'll address soon uh, in in an upcoming episode, we'll talk a little bit more about linguistics and linguistic theory and its significance for understanding biblical passages. Uh, Get in touch with us if you have questions or comments on on the subject. We'd love to uh, continue this conversation. Thanks so much for listening.